My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. During my adolescent years, I adored the word freedom. I guess I was pressured and felt confined by my parents' education policy, the school's rules, and the basic social rules that were required for every citizen. I wanted to be free from it all. I tried to live as freely as possible. But what is freedom? The word freedom in the dictionary is defined as the state to do as one's will pleases, not being restrained or bound. But was it truly this kind of freedom that I was after? There is another definition for freedom, a legal term of freedom, and it is defined as an action to do on one's will within a law not bound by others. Therefore, freedom can be expressed as to act on one's will, which does not harm others and which is done legally. For example, it is not a freedom for an individual to hit another person, saying his or her actions was based on a freedom. The correct word for this type of action could be self-indulgence. The definition of self-indulgence is to act on one's own will without restraint. I had longed for a freedom. However, when I looked deeply into the freedom I desired, it wasn't freedom at all, but self-indulgence. I wanted to do whatever I pleased, whether or not it harmed others. Do we truly have freedom if we do what we want as long as we do not harm others? For example, if an individual drinks alcohol all day long by himself and he does not harm others, is he living in a freedom? Or if an individual watches explicit material alone all day long and does not harm others, is he living in freedom? If we take these circumstances lightly, we may say it is their freedom. In terms of the values of this world, these might be considered freedom. However, these thoughts are misconceptions that come from our partial understanding of the definition of freedom. This misconception comes from focusing on the acting out of one's own will that does not harm others. What about harm to ourselves? If we focus on the definition of freedom as not being restrained or bound, then we can understand that those who are alcoholics, those who are addicted to watching explicit materials, are bound by alcohol or explicit materials. There is a saying amongst heavy drinkers, I start out drinking alcohol, and at some point alcohol drinks alcohol, and then alcohol drinks me. There is another saying, I drink to get drunk, and now I am drinking to be sober. This means that an individual who is addicted to alcohol must stay drunk to feel normal. Those who are addicted to explicit materials are the same. They might have started watching them out of curiosity, but soon they are imprisoned by it. In conclusion, they might have started with their free will, yet in the end, they are prisoners confined by alcohol and explicit materials. It is not freedom, but shackles that await them. 
This is from Epistle of John, chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave of sin. If we contemplate on this word, we realize that humans do not sin freely because they want to, but because they have become the slaves of sin by obeying and following the sin. Men sin because we are bound and restrained by sin, and the Word of God tells us that a man can truly be freed if Jesus frees him from sin. In other words, when Jesus Christ breaks the chain of sin, then that individual is freed from sin and he no longer has to obey sin. Now, because Jesus redeemed our sin and freed us, we can have the right to choose not to sin. And by our free will, we are able to choose righteousness over sin. This is what it is to be truly freed from sin that point at which sin can no longer restrict us. That is truly freedom from sin. However, people of these days misunderstand that freedom from sin as not being condemned, even if they sin freely, doing whatever they please. They believe they will not be judged by God because they are in Jesus Christ, forgiven, even if they sin. But, is that the freedom from sin which the Bible tells us about? If there are those who also think this is right, then they do not truly understand the good news of Christ. A search for you got Say my 
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller. Today's topic is a movement based on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. A reading from the first book of Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The word of the Lord. This passage tells us something about what the church is. It talks about the glory, the gifts, and the grace of the church. Uh, First of all, the glory. Verse 5 talking to the church now, you like living stones are being built together into a spiritual house, meaning a temple, a house in which the spirit of God dwells to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in Exodus, when God brings his people out of Egypt by his grace and power, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and this is what he says to them. Out of all the nations, you will be my special possession. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I will make you my people and I will be your God. Those are the scriptures that God used when he spoke to the children of Israel as they gathered at Mount Sinai. They're the same descriptors that Peter uses for the church here in this passage. So what does that mean? When God brought the children of Israel out by grace, and then he said, I don't want to just be talking to you as individuals. I don't want to relate to you just as individuals. I want you to be a community. I want you to make a covenant. I want you to make vows, covenant together to live, to serve me and to serve each other in a community. And when they did that, God came down in fire and smoke. And Mount Sinai actually trembled under the weight of God's glory. Glory in the Bible is his infinite great uh, greatness and power and beauty and presence And when it came down and and Moses saw it, he actually says, let me look right into the glory. And God says, no, it'll kill you, but my glory will pass by. Peter has the audacity to say this. If you have been called by God, that is, if you've been saved by grace, and you are willing to covenant together, be built together, Peter's saying, yes, you believe in Jesus Christ, great, as an individual. But if you're built together, if like the children of Israel, you're willing to enter into a covenant community, that you serve God and you serve each other together, then we're being told that God 
glory will come down into the church, a spiritual house. The same glory that came down on Mount Sinai, the same glory that came down into the tabernacle, the temple, the same glory that was there in the burning bush, now is available to us in the church. It's an astounding idea. And so let's dwell on it a minute. It's a promise. It's an incredible promise that the church is the dwelling place of the glory of God. And uh, that's a promise. It is, on the one hand, it's a corporate promise. And secondly, though, it's not just a corporate promise. It's also a promise that's unimaginably great. And here, listen. First of all, it's a corporate promise. What do I mean by that? When Peter says, as you're built together, God indwells, see? As you come together, it's very similar to what happened in Exodus. As you come into the community, God indwells you. God lives in the midst. And that is to say, and it must mean this, that the glory of God is available to you in the church in a way that it is not otherwise available to you. Got that? In the church, the glory of God is available to you in a way it's not available in any other wise. And if you say, well, I thought a Christian, every Christian, doesn't God live in our hearts and all that? Yeah, yeah, of course. But this is saying, and it must be saying this, that the, the presence of God, as it came down when the children of Israel made a covenant together to be a community, so the presence of God, the glory of God, inhabits his people in a way he doesn't just actually uh, relate to individuals. And that means it's in the church that you have access to the glory of God in a way not otherwise available. And you say, how does that work? It's actually in some ways common sense, maybe. For example, do you believe that um, through reading the Bible you can actually learn about God and meet God? Okay but you have to understand the Bible. You can go off without any help from anyone else and just read the Bible and try to figure it out yourself. Or if you read it with others, and especially if you read it in the church where the church is a repository of what Christians have understood the Bible teaches over the centuries, it's called theology, that in the community, you're gonna understand the Bible. You're going to go deeper into the Bible and the Bible's gonna go deeper into you in a way it never could happen if you just went off by yourself and said, I'll just read it on my own. Also, worship and prayer corporately does connect you in ways to God that individual prayer does not. Again, that is actually kind of common sense, I think. Let me press you on this. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British preacher in London, 1940s to 1960s, uh, during that period of time, the technology became available to record his sermons. And so people came and said, we want to tape your sermons. And for a while he resisted. I'm glad in the end he gave in because, and let them do it because then we could hear them. I've heard them, many of them, and I'm glad he did. But his reason for resisting was really this. He says, it's one thing to listen to a sermon, a recording of a sermon at home, but it's nothing like the experience of hearing the sermon in the midst of the people of God, in the very physical presence of other people who are worshiping and praying, in the physical presence of the preacher, all gathered in the presence of God. Those are two radically different experiences. And it's the communal experience that's going to shape you in a way that the individual experience will not. He says, the sermon is not a product, it's a participation. And he's right. And if you think, therefore, you know, some of you say, well, I guess the reason for that is psychologically. Well, it's sort of psychological. When you're in the presence of other people, and you've been worshiping and praying, and then you're in the physical presence of the person who's speaking, of course it has a greater impact. It's psychological. No, yes, yes, no. Ultimately, the reason is theological. The glory of God inhabits his people, his community, in a way that's not available anywhere else. And so if you say, well, look, you know what? I can get that guy's sermons. 
download them and listen to them in my car or I'm walking along. I don't have to go to church and I'll be just as shaped by them, just as helped by them. Or you could even say, I'll show up at this church every so often and hear that guy's sermons, but I won't join the church. I won't enter into it as a covenant. I won't be part of a community in which people are committed to helping each other learn and grow. I can learn just as much by showing up every so often and just hearing the sermon. You're wrong. I'll just grow just as much. I'll be just as shaped by it. You are wrong. And the reasons are not psychological. Ultimately, they're theological. But it's not just this is a corporate promise that the glory of God inhabits the corpus, the corporate, the community, and the glory of God is available to us and the power of God is available to us in a way in the community he's not individually. It's also an unimaginably great. I use that word unimaginable because if the glory of God is in the church, then he'll constantly be breaking through your categories. He'll be constantly doing things that a merely human institution could never do. Read Isaiah 6 sometime. Isaiah went to church, where he went to the temple. He must have gone to the temple probably every day, practically. But one day, he saw God high and lifted up. God came down. God's glory passed by. It said he had a vision and he saw God high and lifted up on a throne and his train filled the temple. And he heard the angels shouting, holy, holy, holy. And he was just leveled and he was transformed and he was never the same again. Had this experience of the glory of God. Why? I mean, he went to the temple every day and it didn't happen before. No, that's right. Because in one sense, the temple, the Old Testament temple was a human institution. Human priests doing human sacrifices and human rituals. Okay. But it wasn't only a human institution. God dwelt there. And you never know when God's going to break out. And so one day he went and God broke out. And Peter is saying, we're that temple. That's what he's saying. He says, you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, a house of the spirit, a temple. See, we think, well, the church is just one more human institution. Only half right, everybody. Number one, it is a human institution. And if you're in any church, you will know there are a lot of humans there. And they have all their humanness. They have all their flaws. So it's obviously the church is a, definitely a human I grant the church is a human institution, but it is not one more human institution. It's the only one Jesus Christ started. And it's the only one inhabited by the spirit and the glory of God. You never know what might happen. Don't miss church, everybody. Thomas missed a meeting of the disciples in the upper room and the risen Christ showed up. And the moral of that story is don't miss church. You never know when Jesus might show up. You never know when God might break through, when the train might fill the temple. You never know. Why? Because this isn't just a human institution. I can prove this historically. In 1857, there was a church that was called the Old North Dutch Church. It's not there anymore. And a layman named Jeremiah Lanfear, and he decided to have a a noonday prayer meeting, which he advertised as from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock, come five minutes, 10 minutes, the whole time, trying to draw some people in to pray. It was September 23rd, 1857. The first half hour he was there, he waited there by himself. Finally, a few people showed up. It was an ordinary prayer meeting, but they said, well, this was good. Let's have it again next week. Two years later, 10,000 people in dozens and dozens of noonday prayer meetings were praying all in that lower Manhattan area. But more than that, people started getting converted. And estimations are 
that 50,000 to maybe 80,000 people got converted and joined the church when Manhattan only had 800,000 people. 10% of the population. The fire spread. God came down. His glory passed by. His train filled the temple. And here's another one. 1856, an Englishwoman named Mrs. Colville went to Northern Ireland to try to do some good as a Christian woman. And she visited house to house trying to uh, encourage people to come to church and to believe the gospel. And she went home kind of discouraged because she didn't think she got much in the way of results or fruit. There was a young man named James McQuilkin who heard her out and then some weeks later decided, I want to be a Christian. And he found faith and he was converted. And he started going to a church in Kells, the Northern Ireland town of Kells. And the pastor, the Presbyterian minister where he was going, he suggested that James and a couple of other young men who had recently been converted would meet to pray every week and to figure out how to reach out to their other friends who were not converted and were not going to church. After a number of weeks, another one of their friends got converted. And then after a number of weeks, it became the place where like people were getting converted every week. And the fire spread and people started getting converted. And from 1857 to 1860, 100,000 people got converted and joined the church in Northern Ireland. And the population of Northern Ireland was 300,000 people. The train filled the temple. The glory passed by. God broke out. You say, well, those are nice Anglo-European stories. Well, many of you do know, do you not, that in uh, 1900, less than 1% of Koreans were Christian. And there was a great revival in the early, 1904, 1905, the early part of the first decade in Pyongyang. And the fire spread, and by the end of the 20th century, over a third of Koreans were, were Christian. The same sort of thing happened in East Africa. This is not a human institution, at least not only a human institution. Give up your small ambitions. Pray Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you might rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might melt at your presence. The glory of God's in the church, number one. Number two, second thing we learn here is about the gifts of God in the church. Now, we can notice he's mixing metaphors. First of all, Peter says, like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house. And then he says, you're a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, down in verse 9, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let me tell you how significant this is. Peter does not say you have a royal priesthood. He says to all Christians, you are a royal priesthood. And you know how radical that was? See, in ancient times, all cultures understood that there were human beings and there was God or the gods or the divine or something. And they all understood that there was a kind of gap that had to be bridged in order for the, the human to meet the divine. And they believed that that gap had to be bridged through spiritual elites. You needed to go to a temple, And there in the temple, there would be priests, and the priests were holy, and they were knowledgeable about the things of the divine. And so they believed that these spiritual elites would mediate their relationship with the divine. They didn't have to do it. They weren't holy enough. They weren't knowledgeable enough. So now you know how incredibly weird Christians looked to the world. Christianity never was and still isn't one more world religion, never has been. When it first burst onto the scene, you know, the Romans looked at the Christians and could not figure them out. Even the Jews, and of course the Romans thought the Jews were very weird. 
But even the Jews, they had a temple. They had priests. They had offerings and sacrifices like everybody else. But these Christians, where are your temples? We don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. Well, where are your priests? We don't have a priest. Jesus is our priest. Well, who offers your sacrifices? We don't have any sacrifices to offer. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Never been a religion like that. That was crazy. And yet here's what's interesting. It is true, of course, that Jesus is the temple. He said in John 2 and John 4, you know, the time is coming now is you will be able to worship God in spirit and truth because when I die on the cross, I'll be your temple. I'll bridge the gap. Hebrews 9, 10, 11 all say the same thing. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate mediator. He's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. But you know what that means then? On the one hand, Jesus is the final temple, priest and sacrifice. But at the same time, what that means is all Christians now are a temple. That's verse 5. Are priests. That's verse 5 and that's verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. It says... You're a chosen, a royal priesthood that you may declare the praises of him. What does declare? Who declares? Prophets declare. But now all human, all Christians are declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So all Christians are prophets. Not only that, all Christians are priests. Not only that, we're royal. That means all Christians are kings. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who has the courage and the wisdom to tell the gospel out to declare the gospel. What's a priest? A priest is someone who's got the sympathy and the love and the servant heart to love the gospel in, into people's lives. And what's a king? A king is someone who organizes things and figures out how to get all this done. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, every single Christian has spiritual gifts. Every Christian has an anointing for ministry. Some of us have more prophetic gifts. Some of us have more priestly gifts. Some of us have more kingly gifts. But the fact is, we're all prophets and priests and kings. We're all ministers. There is no spiritual elite anymore. And what does that mean? Sociologists will say human organizations exist along a spectrum. And at one end, we have institutions. At the other end, we have movements. An institution is highly structured. A movement is fluid. An institution is hard to change. A movement is dynamic. An institution is united by rules, and a movement is united by common vision. Now, today, especially younger people, don't like institutions. And yet sociologists say that's somewhat naive, that no human organization can operate without some institutional structures. You've got to have job descriptions. You've got to know who's doing what. You've got to know where the money's coming from. According to the Bible, the Bible requires a certain number of institutional structures for the church. We've got to have doctrinal boundaries. We have to believe something. That's what brings us together. We have officers. We have elders. So we have institutional structure. The Bible in, uh, says so. But in light of what I'm talking to you about, about the glory of God in our midst, about every Christian having gifts for ministry, on that spectrum, not only does that mean the church is not only an institution, it is a dynamic movement. It's a dynamic movement of God. When I was in my mid-20s, I had just basically become a Christian at the university, and I was, my understanding of Christianity was very, very college town-centric. And I got to a blue-collar town where uh, nobody in my church had gone to college except two people who were elementary school teachers, and most of the people over the age of 45 had not finished high school. And they had gifts of mercy and hospitality, and they had all kinds of practical gifts. 
But I immediately came in and imposed my idea on them, and it just didn't work until I actually began to realize, wait, these are the gifts that God has given. And I suddenly realized God is telling everybody what that church should be. And you can do all the strategic planning in the world and all the, and all the control. You can try it, but I couldn't control it. When I actually began to let people use their gifts and, and follow their calling, it became a terrific church. It was the church God wanted. He was in charge of it through his gifts. If it really was mainly, if the church was really, truly, mainly an institution, then you could control it, but it's a dynamic movement. And besides that, sociologists will tell you that institutions are always very turf conscious. Institutions are always trying to keep everybody's job. Institutions, above all, survive. Institutions are about themselves and about propagating themselves and continuing themselves. But this says, our job is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. Praises to who? To the world. The church exists for its non-members. We're not a church for ourselves, if you're a church at all. So the church is a dynamic movement, an organic thing. The church is the, the dwelling of the glory of God, but we have a problem, do we not? The Bible says the church is this dynamic indwelling of God's glory, dynamic movement, but most churches don't look like that at all. I believe the Bible, not only that, but even history proves that there is absolute there is explosive power in the church. There's something divine. There's something supernatural in the church. It can break out. It can transform a country. I mean, the history proves it. But why is it, why is it that most churches seem more like a club? Or they just do seem like very hidebound institutions, not like dynamic movements. Why? And I think the answer is, in a sense, something has to activate what's in the church. And what is it? It's a grasp and an experience of the grace of God in the gospel. Over and over, history shows you some individual, like Martin Luther, John Wesley, very famous men, right? Wrestled with religiosity and what it meant to be religious and how to have a relationship with God. And when the idea of sheer grace hit them, it changed them. In a sense, detonated their gifts, spiritual gifts. But I don't want to give you the impression it's all a matter of famous people like Wesley or Luther. My favorite account is by an illiterate Connecticut farmer named Nathan Cole, uh, who wrote a little memoir in the 1740s called Spiritual Travels. And he talks about how he got converted when George Whitfield came and preached a sermon in a field and he went and listened. And this is what he said. He said, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. That guy probably went to church before that. That guy probably thought he was a Christian. But when the grace of God, when he grasped the grace of God, what happened? His life became characterized by wonder. That's the purpose of the church. To sing the praises, to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, into his light of wonders. I mean, the, the glory and the gifts of God will not be ignited. They won't be activated. How can you fill your life with wonder? Well, the text actually gives you three ways of doing it. Here's just, let's meditate on it. How free it is, how loved you are, how expensive it was. First of all, it says, we are a chosen people. Years ago, a Bible teacher helped me understand this very well. When he says, notice, Christians, it doesn't say you're a choice people. See, if you were a choice people, that would mean God would say, oh, you're better than other people, therefore I'm going to work with you in your life. But that's not what it says. He says you're a chosen people, which means you're not choice, you're just chosen. And he simply has come to you by free grace and said, I want to be your God. I'm going to open your heart. Secondly, 
not only does the grace of God, must we see how free it is, but how loved we are as a result. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You know that word actually means treasured possession. It means prized possession. If, for example, you had very few assets and suddenly you inherited a diamond necklace worth $5 million from a, a relative, that necklace would be your most prized possession, right? It would be worth everything else put together. Do you know what it means for God to say to us? You are my prized possession? He's saying this, all the galaxies are mine, all the oceans, the forest primeval, but they're nothing compared to my love for you. And Jonathan Edwards says, until you know you're that treasured, until you know you're that loved, until you're filled with the knowledge of that, everything you do will be basically for yourself. But if you're filled with this knowledge, then you do things not selfishly, but selflessly. Finally, you're doing things for other people and not for yourself. Do you know you're that treasured? Well, you say, well, how can that be? The grace is free. See how free it is? Do you see how loved you are? And then lastly, do you see how expensive it was? Verse 10 is a quote where it says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. It's a quote from Hosea chapter two, where God tells Hosea, who had an adulterous wife, Gomer, who had born children that weren't his. And so he named one of them, Loami, not mine. Another one he named, not loved. And then finally, she was so unfaithful to him, she ran away with some lover who abused her and sold her into slavery. And yet God comes to Hosea and says, go love your wife again. And all we see, if you go back to Hosea 2, and Hosea says, and so I bought her and brought her back and said, we are gonna be together. And then God says at that very point, in the same way, my people who have not been loved and my people who have not received mercy will receive mercy and will be my people and will get my love. In other words, God says, Hosea, someday the people that I love who have turned away from me, I'm gonna buy them back and I'm gonna make them my people. And for Peter to take that verse and put it here means he believes and he is right that in Jesus Christ, God came to earth into the marketplace of this world and though we had betrayed him and spurned him, he bought us, not with money, but with his blood, to make us his own. And when you see him doing that for you, then you'll know how treasured you are. And then your life will be filled with wonder and it will activate the glory and the grace of God in the church and in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for showing us what we must do if we are going to just be what you've made us in the church. And we pray that it would be your, your grace that activates your glory in our lives. And we do pray that we would lift up our eyes, that you would come down and rend the heavens and come down and be yourself in this city and be yourself in our lives that all might see your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Following is the program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Youngin Winston, and you are now listening to a new program beginning July, The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. Yes, Gospel, The Good News. Last week, we discussed how it is not enough to define gospel as just good news. For good news to become good news, sad and bad news must come before. That's right. When we speak about the gospel, because we do not realize the sad news, the good news does not seem like the good news to us. This is why to understand what the good news is, we must first understand the sad news. For us to understand the sad and good news, we must look at the world from God's point of view and read the Bible. Yes, therefore, one of God's characteristics is He is not affected by time. He lives outside of time. We discussed last time that God is the ruler over time. This is a very important concept to understand. When we understand this concept, we begin to realize and see things in the Bible that were hard to understand before. Yes, that's what we discussed before. God does not live in the presence of time, but lives outside of time. He has already seen the beginning and end of time. What I'm trying to say is that God does not tell us what will happen in the future because He is able to see the future. God has seen and has been through all that has happened from beginning to end. God tells us all these things in the Bible from beginning to end as He saw it exactly. I think it would be great if you can explain the concept more in depth. Absolutely. Today during our second lesson of the Good News of the Gospel, we will be discussing this concept in more depth. Now, let's think back to the last lesson. Last time we talked about how people have the misconception that God had big dreams when he created the heaven and earth. Then the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God, and that's how God's plans were destroyed. God had to find a way to save the people from their sins. He sent his only son to die for our sins. This is all a misunderstanding that people have. Yes. We discuss it is from that kind of a misunderstanding that people ask the questions. Why did God plant the tree of knowledge if he knew what the serpent was going to do? Yeah, that's a good question. And this is what we will be discussing today. 
Have you ever thought about something like this before? Is there anyone from the history of humanity that has actually lived outside of the Bible or could possibly live outside of the Bible? Hmm, I think I needed some time to think about that. Of course, the people who believe in the theory of evolution can tell you that it is possible. But I think it is impossible in the eyes of a Christian like us. Yes, I can say that it's not possible. Where does the history of humanity begin? In Genesis chapter 1. That's right. Genesis chapter 1, that is the beginning of humanity. That is why the heaven and earth was created. So when does this prosperity of humanity end? I would say in Revelation. You're right, it is in Revelations. It says in Revelations chapter 20 that he who sat on the great white throne will come to judge the dead from the things which were written in the books. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And in chapter 21, it says a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem came down from heaven. And only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the gates. So on top of the earth God created is where the history of humanity ends. After that, some will be punished for eternity and some will have eternal life. Will humanity grow again after that? What I mean is, will children be born again? Well, I don't think that will happen. In hell, a person could not be born in eternal fire. God also said that there will be no marriage in heaven. So I think there won't be any more birth. That's right. Everything you stated is correct. Babies can't be born from people who are being punished in eternal fire in hell. There are no marriages in heaven, so there will be no births in heaven as well. Therefore, all humanity began with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. All humans continue to be born after that. They live and they die until Revelations chapter 20. This is why no one can live outside of the time of the Bible. If you look at this story from a different angle, the Bible is our story and my story. That's correct. I myself live and die between the time of Genesis and Revelation. Yes, that's right. You and I and all the listeners listening to our program, we all live inside the time of the Bible. This Bible has a beginning and an end. It's not a prediction. It is reality that has happened and will happen. We discussed last time that our all-knowing God created humans knowing the fact that they will go astray and disobey Him. This means that God had another reason and purpose when He began His creation. Yes, we did. We also discussed that we are able to see and believe that God had a good intention and plans when He begins His creation, if we are able to read the Bible from God's point of view, that means that we won't ask, why did He do that? We will be able to say that is why He did all those things. That's right. Let's talk about a few important points. If we think about Genesis and Revelations, what do you believe is God's final plan? If you mean His final plan, wouldn't it be to take all the people 
with their names written in the book of life to the New Jerusalem? Yes, that's correct. That is God's final plan. His plan is to take all His people to heaven to love them eternally. That is what He has planned all along. This is not planned because God was lonely or bored. God is perfect on His own. All of the glory is in Him. He is full of joy and happiness. But He wants to give us His joy, happiness, and love. He wants to share His love, joy, and happiness with us eternally. Then, what did He decide to do to achieve this? What is it that He started? His creation. That's correct. So, the reason for all of our all-knowing God's creation was to fulfill His uh, definite plan. That is, He wanted to share His joy, love, and happiness with His people for eternity. Yes, all these things have value to God. Now, let's take a closer look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Can you read the verse for us? Of course. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a, such a famous verse. This is a verse that all Christians have read at least once. Yes, that's right. Let's take the time to study this verse today. The verse starts out saying, In the beginning, in other words, it means to start. But in what language was Genesis written? In Hebrew? Yes, that's correct. It was in Hebrew. But Hebrew is an interesting language. Each letter of Hebrew has a meaning of its own. And you place those letters together to make a statement or a meaning. What I mean is that our English alphabet, ABC, does not hold a meaning on its own. But in Hebrew, they do. The Hebrew alphabet has 23 consonants, and these consonants each have a sound and a meaning. The first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. Aleph can mean either an ox or to learn. It kind of reminds me of the Chinese character. Each character has its own meaning. Yes, that's right. But these Hebrew letters also can be used as numbers. So the first letter, Aleph, can also represent the number one, and it can also be used as a sign. There are a lot of meanings to one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Do you know the name of God? Yes, I know it as Jehovah. Yes, that's correct. This is the name introduced in Leviticus. Jehovah means, I am who I am. God's name in Hebrew consists of four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Yod, He, Vav, and He. It consists of these four letters, and that is why it is read as Yahweh. The meaning of Yahweh is the same as we discussed before. It means, I am who I am. But in Hebrew, each letter has its own meaning. What do the letters Yod, He, Vav, and He each mean? First, Yod means hand, He means window, or to see, like we use the window to see. I see. And Vav means a hook or a nail. Lastly, hey again means window or to see. If you take each letter and its meaning and put it together, it means hand, see, nail, see. Wow, that is very interesting. 
It makes me think about Jesus' hands nailed to the cross. That's correct. That is why Jesus is God in the form of flesh. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember that Pilate placed a sign on the cross? Do you remember what was written on the sign? Yes. I think it was Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. You remember correctly. Now, can you read John chapter 19, verses 19 and 20 for us? Of course. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. It was right. Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. You are correct. The Bible tells us that Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, was written in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it is read, Yeshua Ha Nazri Melech Ha Yehudim, meaning Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. What do you think is the first letter of each word? It is Yad, He, Vav, He. It is the four letters for God. Wow! Then you're saying that God's name was actually written on top of the Jesus cross. I guess you can say that. Anyway, my explanation about the Hebrew alphabet was a little long. The reason for this long explanation is to tell you that we can look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, exactly the same way. The meaning and explanation that I'm telling you are not from me. It is the translations of the Hebrew theologians that believed in Jesus. In the beginning, in Hebrew, is read Bereshit. Here, Beh means in, and Reshit means beginning. This was how it was translated in the beginning. But as we talked about before, there can be multiple meanings to a single Hebrew letter. First, Bet, which means in, can also have the meaning of house. The Bible's first word on the first page starts out with the letter Bet, which means house. Jewish scholars place a great importance in this meaning. Mark Biltz, a Jewish theologian and pastor, explained that God began his story with the letter meaning house, and this shows how much he wants to build houses. Building a house means more than what it says, because it also means the longing for a family. This is about a family. So, it can be translated that God began his creation for his family, right? Yes, I agree with you. Therefore, the Bible tells how God selects his people, chooses his people, saves his people, and how he will spend everlasting life with his people. If you understand this, what would the answer to the question of why did God go through with his creation knowing everything that would happen afterwards? To select his people? I think that would be the answer. That's right. We stated earlier that there will be no one that exists after Revelation chapter 20. Yes, we did. 
then you can say that God will know every human being that lives in between Genesis chapter 1 and Revelations chapter 20, not only by their name, but will know them better than themselves. Of course, that would be true. He is the all-knowing, almighty God. Yes, that's why God will already know if the good news is delivered to the person, if that person will accept Jesus Christ into their heart or not, right? I think that's also true. Also, God will know who will never accept Jesus till the end and die without being saved from their sins. Yes. Then, do you believe that in the past, in all humanity, there was someone that would have accepted Jesus into their hearts only if they heard the gospel, but sadly did not have the chance to hear it and died without being saved? Could this really happen under our all-knowing God? Come to think of it, I don't think that is possible. I did think before that there would be people that did not have the chance to hear the gospel before they die, and I felt bad for them. But after hearing what you say today, I believe if that person was going to accept Jesus into their heart, then God would have made sure that person heard the gospel. Yes, that's right. We are able to see this kind of characteristic from God throughout the Bible. Of course, this does not mean that since God saves all those who are going to be saved anyway, that we don't need to spread His word to others. All of you listening must spread the gospel to everyone. That is how God's chosen people will hear the gospel and receive salvation. Amen. I believe that will happen. But you stated before that we can see characteristic of God making sure the gospel gets to the people who need it throughout the Bible. I am very interested. Where can we see it in the Bible? Yes, to put it simply, it is evident in a story that we all know very well about the Ethiopian eunuch. It is in Acts chapter 8. He is on his way back from Jerusalem and was reading prophet Isaiah sitting on his chariot. But the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip to go to the eunuch and explain what he was reading and to spread the gospel and to baptize him. Why did God want this salvation to happen? This is because God knew that the Ethiopian eunuch would accept Jesus Christ into his heart after hearing the gospel. So the Holy Spirit sent someone that was needed. I see. That is not a story. That comes out in the Bible. I always think about the story about Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. It is said that Thomas passed away while preaching the gospel all the way in India. Yes, that's right. Why was he sent all the way to India back then? It was uh, confusing to me. But after hearing what you say today, I think that it was uh, because there were people in India back then that needs to hear the gospel because they were willing to accept Jesus into their hearts. That's a good point. The Holy Spirit stops Paul from going to Asia and tells him to go to Macedonia. God sends the right person to the right place so that the people who will accept Jesus will hear the gospel. 
And Jesus said these important words in Matthew chapter 18, which explains about the one lost sheep among the hundred. Please read Matthew chapter 18, verse 14 for us. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That is right. It doesn't matter who the person is or how small. God does not lose one soul. It is not in God's plan to lose that soul. Let's go back to our main lesson. The reason why we are explaining about our all-knowing God throughout the first two lessons is that it is important to understand this concept, to understand the Bible fully. Now we are waiting for Jesus to come. We want him to come as fast as possible to take us to heaven. But why does he not come? Why does he not come today? Why did Jesus not come back a hundred years ago? It's because all of you and I were not born yet. Because God knew, when all of us heard the good news, that we would accept Jesus and that he would be happy seeing us become his people. That's why he waited. That's why he's still waiting today. Because there are so many more people that need to hear the gospel and accept Jesus into their hearts. I am so grateful that God knows everything, that He waited until all of us were born. But, come to think of it, that means that when Jesus comes, there will be no more new people that will be left to believe. Yes, to be exact, it doesn't mean when there are no more people that believe. Instead, Jesus will come when there are no more people that need to be born that will believe. Corruption will continue, and there will come a time when the world will be full of those that hear the gospel and decide not to accept it, and when there is no one in future generations that will be born that will accept Jesus, that is when Jesus will come. Now, today's lesson was a little long. There may be some of you asking, what does all of this have to do with the gospel? But as I explained in the first lesson, to know the gospel, the good news, you must learn about the sad news first. That's why we are learning about this today. But one more thing to think about is that God does not lose even one soul. He already knows who will receive salvation. This is because he already saw the ending. That is why it is important to remember he does not lose even one soul. If you think about it this way, you can see God's grace in how He wants to save all His people. We should all be thankful. I hope that you take the next week to meditate about God's grace in the beginning of all His creation. This ends today's portion of the goodness of the gospel. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. See you next week.
was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. The reason Jesus was crucified, died on the cross, and was resurrected was to free us. This event happens so that we no longer have to live as slaves to sin. It was for us to avoid death, which is the penalty of sin. And that is why the Bible tells us to stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The Bible is telling us not to be bound by the yoke of sin, which Jesus took off of us. I told you the legal definition of freedom, an act of doing one's own will not restricted or bound by others within the law. Although this definition was from a worldly perspective, I believe this can be applied to us Christians as well. The only difference is that the freedom for us Christians should be in our own actions within the law of God. Jesus did not free us so that we can freely sin. 
Jesus freed us so that we are no longer slaves of sin, but to dominate sin and choose to be the slave of righteousness. Romans chapter 1 verses 26 through 32 lists the type of sin, including homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. If all the sin that the Bible defined here as sin is still happening to us, then it proves that we are still living as slaves of sin. Heart and Soul Listeners God did not send His only Son to save us so that we could live continuously sinning without guilt or discomfort. Whenever we sin, we ought to have fear and discomfort. When we are still sinning or we fall to the temptation of sin, we should be uncomfortable. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. This is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. True freedom is not sinning freely, but instead choosing with our own will not to sin. I hope that we can all have the kind of freedom that Christ intended for us. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now. I see T'was grace that taught my heart to fear And grace my fears relieved How precious did that grace appear The I first believed my chains are gone I've been set free 
God my Savior has ransomed me And like a flood His mercy reigns Unending love Amazing God who called 